Welcome to the Social Dallas Podcast. Today you'll hear an uplifting message from our pastor, Robert Madu. Our hope is that your relationship with God would flourish like never before. Go to Philippians chapter 2 today. We always come around a theme at Easter, and this year our theme is above all. The reality that our Savior is above all. We are looking at his supremacy, his sufficiency, his seniority, his sovereignty, that he is absolutely above all. And I love this verse in Philippians chapter 2 because the Apostle Paul so beautifully articulates the reality that he is above all. So Philippians chapter 2, we'll start at verse number 5 and land at verse number 11. When you're ready to read it, say, yeah. If you're not ready and you're still flipping your page or scrolling on your iPhone, say, hold up. I heard those hold ups with a please. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'll wait for you. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse number 5. And Paul says this, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come on, somebody. That is good all by itself. It's actually better than that cute golf clap you gave, but that's all right. I know you're saving your energy for later in the message. (laughs) He was elevated to the highest place and has the name that is above. Above all. I just want to use that as a title today, above all, above all. Look at your neighbor, whichever one of you like the best, and say, oh, neighbor, <laughs> our Savior, his name is Jesus. He's above all. Come on, find another neighbor, the one you completely ignored, the one that's your second option. Come on, say, other neighbor. I know you look good in your Easter outfit, <laughs> but there's one thing you need to know. Our God is above all. Come on, in here, in the watch party room, online, in your bathroom still. Give God a real praise like you know he's above all. Let's pray a long prayer, then you can sit down. Father, thank you for your word. Speak today. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Service number three, come on. Above all, above all. Speaking of above, have you been to an airport lately? Been on an airplane lately? Matter of fact, can I see your hand if you've been on an airplane lately? Look at all these hands. Come on, world travelers. 
It's funny, you know, if you would have asked me the question I just asked you about four years ago, I would have been the first person to raise my hand. In fact, I would have pretentiously raised up my hand, you know, and said, oh, airport, airplanes, yes. I'm there every single week. DFW is like my second home. And uh, I'm executive platinum with American Airlines. Because there was a season in my life I was traveling all the time. I was always going somewhere. But now that is not the case. It's been a while since I've been on an airplane. been a while since I've been on a flight. And to be honest with you, I don't miss it. I don't miss it at all. I don't. Now, I do miss my airline points. I do miss the airline points. But I've gained something. I've gained something. I've gained peace. Ooh. And I'd much rather have my peace than the airline points. Much rather have peace. Because how many of you know, ladies and gentlemen, to travel is stressful. It is very stressful. It is so stressful to get on a plane, to go to the airport. It is unavoidably stressful. In fact, I've often said that if you ever want to test your faith, book a flight. Just book you a flight, okay? If you really think you saved, you really think you full of the spirit, fly spirit. <laughs> and then come holla at your boy because airports and airplanes have a way of just putting stress and angst in your life. It is it's stressful to travel, especially in this climate in which we live. The Bible says that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. Don't forget that last one, self-control. That is the fruit that should be evident in your life. But there is something about the airport, it's something about an airplane that will take all of those fruits of the Spirit out of you, okay? It will just take it all out of you. Have you ever met a stewardess that's just trying to make you go off? Just trying to make you lose your mind. Come on, you've been there before. I'm not the only one. You're just sound asleep on the plane, getting you some good rest. And here comes that stewardess with the tap, with the strong tap. Say, excuse me. Yeah, can you? Yeah, the mask. I need it up over. All the way up over your nose. You're like, for real. And so you lift it up, fall back asleep. Here she come again with another tap. What is it? Cookies or pretzels? Give me the cookies, give me the cookies. Okay, and you can lower the mask now. Oh, for real? I can eat the cookies now. We good, we good, I can lower it. It's stressful sometimes to travel. I have been on planes where I have been sound asleep, getting ready to land, and the stewardess has sh shaken me to get up. I'm like, what, what's, what's going on? We about to die? We, we, we crashing? No. I just need your seat back in the upward position before we land. Can we talk about this seat back just for a second? I'm gonna get to the resurrection. But is this seat back that serious? No, for real, I want to know, I want to know. It's not like it's a lazy boy. This thing don't recline all the way back. You know what I'm saying? It only goes back about that far, right there. So I'm confused, I'm confused. This safe, this ain't safe. This safe, this ain't safe. It's just stressful. Stressful to travel. And so, as a consequence, when I do travel, as soon as I land, I want to leave, okay? I don't have a lot of pet peeves, but if you are picking me up from the airport, do not come on time, come early and check the flight tracker and make sure you're there when I land. I do not want to stay in the airport longer. That's like a prison sentence being extended. I want to go home. I want to go home. And I'll never forget this one time. I landed in a place. I sent my flight information and I waited and I waited and I waited some more and I waited. I waited till I was the only one there. I waited till there was no bags on the merry-go-round and I waited and I waited. I'm like, where is my is picking me up. I'm about to call Uber, but I noticed there was another guy who was actually there when I landed. 
And I noticed he was looking around and looking confused and looking at the paper and looking up and finally got to the point, it was just me and him there at the baggage claim. I said, this got to be my ride. He got to be just struggling. So I just go up to him. I said, excuse me. He said, hey. I said, are you looking for somebody? He said, matter of fact, I am. He said, I'm, I'm looking for a Robert Maydew. I said, player, that's me. That's me right here. He said, okay, I've been, I've been looking for you and waiting. I said, yeah, I've been waiting for you too. I'm right here. I'm right here. He said, okay, well, let's get in the car. And we get in the car and we start driving. And I noticed as we're driving, he's looking at me. He keeps looking at me. He says, well, you sure don't look like your picture. I said, excuse me. He said, yeah, you, you don't look like the picture they gave me of you. I said, what picture did they give you? He flips over the itinerary and puts this picture right here. Uh, <laughs> I said, oh, no wonder you didn't find me because that ain't me. <laughs> I found it intriguing that he had the right name, Robert Madu, but he had the wrong picture. And it is scary. It is frustrating, I dare say, when somebody has the right name of somebody, but they don't have an accurate picture. Ladies and gentlemen, I think this is the problem in human history because everybody knows the name Jesus, this, this name that is above every name. Whether you are atheist or whether you pay for Bible saved, you are fully aware of that name. You cannot deny his existence. You cannot deny his life. He was one of the most formidable people that ever walked the face of this earth. You cannot deny that name that is above every single name. But the problem our world has is some of us have a different picture as it relates to that name and it's not enough for you to know the name that is above every name if you don't have the right picture to go with that name oh can I speak on behalf of the people who the only reason you came to Easter today is because your mama said if you want to eat lunch at my house you go into church. There are some people that the reason they don't want to set foot in a church is because they've had an experience with people who are supposed to represent this name that is above every single name. And because they had a bad experience with the people that were supposed to represent that name, they have now projected the character of humanity onto the name that is above every name. And I want to tell you, it is a horrible thing to put the character of man Onto your God. Ooh, just because some church person was mean and hateful, it does not mean that Jesus is mean and hateful. Just because some church person wouldn't talk to you, it does not mean that your Savior doesn't want to talk to you and have relationship with you. Just because some church person judged you before you walked into the doors of a church and said, you got to speak Christianese and look saved before I talk to you, it does not mean that is the character or the nature of our Savior. His name is Jesus, but you better have the right picture with that name. Somebody help me preach in here today. Oh, this is why I actually love the Gospels. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four Gospel writers. The reason the Gospels were recorded was because they were trying to make sure that there was an accurate picture with the name. You must understand that after the first few decades of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was no written account of the life of Christ. The gospel, the gospel that we have, it was actually spread orally. And the reason there, there was no need for a written account of the life of Christ was because there were so many eyewitnesses around at the time that had seen the miracles for themselves. 
Like there were so many people who were there when he did the miracles. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine being in line and watching the disciples pass the fish and the bread and being so hungry and talking about, Jesus, you can preach, but you're long-winded, and I'm really trying to get some of that fish. And can you see the fish almost running out? And just as you go to grab just a little bit of piece, all of a sudden another piece pops up. You say, oh my goodness, isn't he good? They were there. They ate the fish and the bread. They saw the miracles. They saw him walk on water. They saw him calm the sea with a three-point sermon and say, peace be still. They saw the miracles themselves. So if you were around at the time and you tried to say, let me tell you something. Jesus really didn't multiply the fish and the bread. What had happened was a food truck pulled up and started passing out fish and bread. There were people at the time who would have said, no, hold up. I was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw it. But over time, these eyewitnesses began to die off. And as the eyewitnesses began to die off, all of a sudden people began to distort the picture of who Jesus was. And that's why these gospel writers wrote. And I found it intriguing that as long as there were some eyewitnesses who were alive, there was an accurate picture of who Jesus was in the culture. Oh, might I dare say that the reason we don't have an accurate picture of who Jesus is is because we got some dead eyewitnesses. We don't have any people who are acting like they have a real, vibrant, alive relationship with Christ. No wonder nobody wants to get saved at your work. You're the most negative one in the building. Don't you want to come to church? Don't you want this Jesus and your face looking constipated like you've been sucking on lemons all day? No, I don't want that Savior. If your life looks like that, we need some eyewitnesses that have a real relationship with Jesus, not church, and can say this is actually an accurate picture of who he is. So I love Matthew, Marky Mark. Uncle Luke and little John, they all come together in this concerted effort to, to give us the right picture, the right picture, the right picture. It, look at what it takes four gospel writers from different perspectives so you can get the fullness of this Savior who has the name above every name. Y'all see our big screens and we leveled up for Easter. We got screens over here and screen back here and we got all these camera people and they can hit you right now. They're switching in the back. There's a little switching room and they'll go camera right. He's moving to the left. He had too much espresso after the first service. He's moving to the right and all of a sudden they're switching and they're giving you different angles of me. I am the same person but they're just giving you a different angle of who I am. The different angle doesn't change the solidarity of who I am. It's just another perspective. Ooh, this is the power of these four gospel writers. They're giving us different perspectives of who Jesus is. Oh, I like the way they do it too. I feel like preaching in this third service. Oh, like four film directors who are filming the same subject. If you like a long documentary, you got to read the book of Matthew. Oh, yes, you know, he starts off with the lineage of Jesus, giving you baby daddy after baby daddy after baby daddy. Mark is writing to a Jewish audience, trying to let you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of over 300 Old Testament prophecies, that he's the one you've been waiting for. If you like sci-fi movies, go straight to the book of Luke, because you know Luke is a doctor, and he goes into detail explaining the miracles that Christ did, how his miracles could do what modern medicine could not do. If you like action movies like me, where things get blown up and people get beat up, ooh, go straight to the book of Mark. If you ain't got that much time, read Mark. That's the shortest gospel. He don't even have time for baby Jesus. Homeboy skips Christmas and just goes straight to full-grown Jesus with hair on his chest, smelling like Old Spice. Mark is not playing games with you. 
Like love movies? Oh, like romantic movies? You got to go to the book of John. You know, John, this is the dude that has his head on the chest of Jesus. He can hear his heartbeat. That's why John's gospel pulsates with the personality of Jesus Christ because John knows his heart and wants you to know that he so loved you and he gave his only son for you. These four gospel writers are coming together to give us the clear picture of who Jesus is, that he was not just a good man, but that he was a God man. He was God in flesh. This is actually what Paul is saying in Philippians. He's trying to explain something that is so lofty, something that is so difficult to articulate. I don't know what illustrations or what metaphors to talk about the incarnation that God emptied himself of his divinity, that God was still God in form, but he became a man, that he was omnipotent, all-powerful in the flesh, that he was omniscient, all-knowing in the flesh, that he was omnipresent, able to be everywhere at the same time, but for 33 years, he limited himself to one body. How does that work? How do you even explain that? How do you prove that Jesus is God? This is the problem we run into because you'll talk to people and they're like, give me your argument that God is real. Like, prove it. Prove it. No, prove it. Let me see. I got a lot of degrees. Show me. Show me. Prove it. And we can have discussions. But the reality is, whenever God began to reveal himself to humanity, he did not send an argument. He sent a person. He did not send a philosopher, he sent a person. He did not send a title, he sent a person. He did not send a debater, he sent a person. He did not send a condemner, he sent a savior, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the proof that God is real. He is the reality of God in bodily form. Would you just say that name, say Jesus. Jesus. Come on, say it with your chest, say Jesus. Come on, say it like you want the people in the watch party room to hear you. Would you just say Jesus? Jesus. Oh, what a beautiful name it is. Is it a beautiful name? Oh, you understand what that name means, right? It means Savior. I know some of y'all super saved. You floated in. You had communion for breakfast. But just in case you didn't know what that name means, it actually means Savior. Is it a beautiful name? Because if you're calling on that name, which means Savior, you are saying, huh, I need to be saved. You are actually confessing, huh, that life is above my pay grade and that I don't know how to do life on my own. When you call on that name, you are actually admitting your dependence. You are actually admitting you don't know where to go. When you call on that name, you're saying, I need you. You're saying, I'm stuck in something that I don't know how to get out of. Ooh, have you ever been stuck? I'm not talking about like in a relationship. We'll talk about that later. But I mean like... <laughs> It's like, oh, why'd you have to say that on Easter? <laughs> he right here. This is the only time I can get him to come. <laughs> oh, that made me laugh. Um, <laughs> he gonna change. God is working on him. <laughs> have you ever been stuck? No, like for real. You ever been stuck? Like, like physically stuck. Woo! You have not had a panic hit you until you get stuck. You ever been stuck? Like stuck on the seatbelt? Stuck on the elevator? True story, as if God knew I was going to be preaching this message. My wife, my bride, Pastor Taylor Madhu, she got stuck a week and a half ago on the elevator. Got stuck on the elevator, watch this, with our three kids and our golden doodle that needs deliverance. All of them, 
we're stuck on elevator. And I'll never forget it because she calls me. She calls me. This is one of her greatest fears, by the way. And she calls me. She's like, babe, I'm stuck on the elevator. And I like immediately had to respond. Like, are, are you serious? I said, look, okay, all right, calm down. All right, don't go anywhere. I said, I said I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm, just, I'm not kidding. I run out down the hallway and I start running. I'm like, hold up, halfway through the sprint. I'm like, I can't do nothing. I cannot get you out of the elevator. So I called her right back. I said, hey, babe, uh, call the front desk. They're working on it. They're going to get you out. I couldn't do anything. People panic when they get stuck. We were not created for stagnation. In fact, freedom of movement is a fundamental aspect of our existence. We start freaking out, especially when we're physically stuck. You remember 2020? I remember. Oh, I remember Easter 2020. I remember preaching in an empty sanctuary, looking into an abyss of darkness at a camera. It was the only time I got out and went right back into my house and we were stuck. Remember that? I was stuck in the house with our three little humans who I love, but we're all under the age of six. And when I was stuck in the house with them for several months, I realized on those Ge National Geographic movies when some of those animals eat their young just to survive, it just clicked for me. <laughs> this messed up when you are stuck. Maybe you remember that movie, 127 Hours. It was based on a true story of the life of Aaron Ralston, who went on a hike in Utah and got stuck because his arm got lodged in the midst of a boulder and a rock and for 126 hours he was stuck. And in the last hour he takes out a dull knife and amputates his own arm to get unstuck. You'd be shocked what some people will do to get out of the predicaments that they're in. And what I found intriguing about his story is that part of the reason he was willing to cut off his own arm to get unstuck was because he didn't tell anybody he was going on this hike. He was out there alone. So because he was a professional hiker, he said, I don't need to tell nobody where I am. I've done this before. I've done several hikes. And all of a sudden, when he thought he knew his way and got himself in a situation he could not get himself out of, he realized he was stuck in isolation and nobody was coming to get him. Oh, is that not a picture of humanity? Come on, how many of you be honest? Have you ever tried to do things your own way and got yourself in a situation that you could not get yourself in? Come on, that is the story of our parents, Adam and Eve, when they were disobedient and took of the forbidden fruit that God said not to take. They said, I can do what I want. And they got stuck. And we've been getting stuck ever since. This is the predicament of humanity. What did they do? What was the evil in taking that forbidden fruit? Was it because they chewed it? Is there sin in chewing? If it is, you messed up at lunch today. No, that wasn't the evil. The evil was that they looked at that fruit and they looked at it and it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Oh, that reminds me of a verse that says that all that is in the world is the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Whatever your sin is, whatever flavor of sin you got, it's in those three categories. The lust of your eye, the lust of your flesh, and the pride of life. John says the pride of life lasts because I think that's the one that's most lethal. Pride. This is essentially why Paul is giving this beautiful picture of the humility of Christ. Because he's letting the church at Philippi know that you will not have unity if you have pride. He's letting them know about the 
danger of pride. Do you know what the greatest enemy of our souls is? It is pride. Pride is at the bottom of every sin. Pride is what's destroying our nation right now. Pride is what's destroying families right now. Pride is why there is a war in Ukraine and Russia is sending bombs. Pride is at the bottom of every argument. Pride is the reason that marriages are falling apart. Pride is what makes you not call your mother or call your brother that you hadn't spoken to for years. Pride is what's destroying us. Pride is what stops you from having an encounter with Jesus. Because you think, I got this. I can do this on my own. It's always pride. And Paul is pleading with the church at Philippi and saying, you will never have unity unless you have humility. And it stops with the pride. Pride. Here's the funny thing about pride. And that's why some of you are looking at me and you're like, mm, I know four people that need this message. Mm, Kelly, you know, Kelly, she need this message. Because nobody ever thinks they're prideful. Isn't that funny? Pride has the ability to hide. We don't ever think we're the one that's prideful. We always think it's somebody else. That's the problem with pride. And then Paul says you need humility. And the problem with humility is you never know when you got it. Because the day you start saying, you know I'm really humble. I just want to thank God for my humility. You lost it. So this is the tension that Paul is living in. He's saying, if you want to see the mind of Christ, you've got to get rid of the pride. And you've got to have the mind of Christ, which was humility. And he starts showing us step by step how humility is the reason that Jesus came down to earth. Pride is what turns Satan from an angel into a devil. Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. But humility is what made Jesus step down from heaven and leave the heavenly host and put on human skin and feel what we feel and know what we go through. Do you know how low your Savior came for you? See, this is Easter. And every Easter, we start shouting about, he got up, he got up. I wish I had a Hammond B3. Hey, he got up. He got up. And he did. I'm glad he got up. But the reason he got up, and not just from the grave, but actually ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, the reason his name is exalted above every name, the reason his name is so transcendent, the reason his exaltation is so high is because of the depth at which he went low. He came down so low. That's why he's lifted up high. So Paul said, you got to have the mind of Christ. Oh, this is antithetical to our because everybody's trying to go up by trying to reach for going up. But that's actually the quickest way to come down. If you actually want to go up, then you got to actually come down and start serving somebody and live in humility. Oh, this ain't going to get a whole lot of amens. You should have shouted in worship. Humility. I almost titled this message, What Goes Down Must Come Up. Because that is the law of humility. The law of gravity is what goes up must come down. And it's actually the law of pride. Because anytime pride is in your heart, set your timer. The fall is coming. And so Paul says, here's what I want you to have. The mind of Christ. A Christ who would come so low. Worship team, join me. So low 
that he left the heavenly host. He would come so low that he would put on human skin. He said he became a human. There are no metaphors for this. This is a billionaire choosing to live on the street. He came so low that he created a womb and then got in a womb. He came so low that he would listen to his parents when he was the only kid in the history of humanity that could actually look at his parents and say, look, I brought y'all in this world. <laughs> and I can take you out. He came so low that at 12 years old, he is inquiring and asking questions in the temple, asking questions about the word that he was. He got so low that he would be baptized in the Jordan River. And John would go, oh, no, no, no. You, I, 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 you start stuttering. I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. He said, no, no, no. I've got to fulfill all righteousness. I've got to come low. You want to see your world change? You want to see a resurrection in your family? Come low. You want to see a resurrection in your life? Don't approach Jesus in your pride and your independence. Come down low. Humility is what gets God's attention. Pride is what turns him away. Some of you are trying to fix yourself in pride. You're like, I'll come when I get some stuff together. Newsflash, you can't get yourself together. You are too hashtag jacked up to get yourself together. How many New Year's resolutions are you going to break trying to get yourself together? You can't. You need a Savior. And the Savior had the mind to come down low. His exaltation was intrinsically connected to the depth of his humanity. Why ain't y'all playing? Didn't I say come up here and play? That'll make this sound a lot more spiritual. Are we moving in slow motion? He came low. So Paul says, not only to become a man, he says he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. You understand, it's not just that he died. It's that he died a death on the cross. Whew, that's slow. To die a death on a cross is not just humility. That's lower. That's humiliation. The Romans set up crucifixion to humiliate the criminal. That's why it was a slow death that you would hang there for hours. There was no linen cloth to cover, but you would hang there naked, broken, bleeding, a public spectacle, and the shame that would hit people when they would see the person hanging on that cross wondering what did they do 
to be killed this way. This is what your Savior did. He was humiliated. It was the epitome of shame as he hung on that tree, but he had to do it. There was no other way because Adam and Eve hid behind a tree and they covered themselves with shame. So this Savior who is reversing the curse of what sin did said, I will hang on a tree and I'll face the shame so you could be covered. He died on the cross and hear me, he was obedient to death. Death, the strongest and most final thing, death. What is stronger than death? This is the power of the resurrection. This is why Paul says, if he did not get up, stop preaching. If there is no resurrection of the dead, our faith is empty because what is stronger than death? This isn't in your Bible. So don't look for it, but there's a story that is told of a council in the corridors of heaven. And creation was trying to figure out who is the strongest on earth. And before the meeting ever got started to find out who was the strongest, somebody spoke up and said, iron has to be the strongest. Think of every structure that has ever been built. Every structure has been made with iron. Iron has to be the strongest. So they said, iron, are you the strongest? And iron said, no, I'm not the strongest. I know that every structure, every building that you see is composed with my material. But iron said, no, I'm not the strongest. Fire is the strongest. Because although my metal and my iron is strong, anytime I encounter fire, I start melting. So fire is the strongest. And they asked fire, are you the strongest? And fire said, no, 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 I'm not the strongest. I know my heat has the power to melt iron, but water is the strongest because as soon as I encounter water all of a sudden I am out I am not the strongest so they said okay water you must be the strongest and water said no 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 I'm not the strongest I know that I can put out fire but please believe me when I tell you the sun is the strongest because as soon as the rays of the sun hit me I immediately evaporate so they said okay son you must be the strongest and the sun said wait one minute I am not the strongest. I know that my rays can evaporate water, but the cloud is the strongest. And although my rays are bright and they shine, whenever the clouds get in front of me, they block my ability to shine. So the clouds are the strongest. And the cloud said, no, 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 I'm not the strongest. I know I can block the sun, but the wind is the strongest. Because whenever the wind blows, it's got the power to separate me and blow me from the east to the west. So they said, okay, wind, you win. You must be the strongest. But the wind said, no, I'm not the strongest. The mountain is the strongest. Because whenever I blow with all of my force against the mountain, all of a sudden I'm split in two. So the mountain is the strongest. And the mountain said, no, don't give me the award. I am not the strongest. Man is the strongest. Man with his ingenuity. Man with his cognitive aptitude. Man with his brilliance and his ability to build machinery can blow me apart with one blow. Man is the strongest. And man said, no, no, no. I'm not the strongest. I know I got all kinds of intellect. I got all kinds of money, all kinds of degrees, but the 
there's one thing that I can't escape, that is death. That is one thing that no matter what your name is, you will die. So they said, I think we got a winner. Death, you must be the strongest. And death said, well, I thought I was. But all of a sudden, after I killed Abraham, after I killed Isaac and Jacob, after I killed all the prophets, I killed Jesus too. And I thought he was dead on Friday. I thought he was dead on Saturday. But early Sunday morning, oh, he got up from the grave. I'm trying to tell you, this ain't another Sunday. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. I need somebody to give him a praise in this place like you know. We can't treat the resurrection like it's just another day. If he didn't defeat death, if he didn't get up, we're wasting our time. We ought to go to brunch if he didn't get up from that grave, but because he did. What do you have to fear? Because earth is not the final say. What do you have to fear when he took the sting out of death? This is the power of the resurrection. Oh, now I know why Paul can write this. Now I know why Paul can write, let this mind be in you. It is also in Christ Jesus. Now I know why Paul can write, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now I know why Paul can write, my God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now I know why Paul can write, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on to that which is ahead. Now I know why Paul can write, oh, that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering, not in the fellowship of his success, in the fellowship of his suffering. I want to talk to somebody that's going through the most painful season right now, and you want to give up and throw in the towel, and it's humbling you. I came to tell you right after the humbling there is coming an exaltation and that pain is producing power that pain is giving you a prayer life that pain is doing something on the inside of you that success couldn't do oh that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering the power of his resurrection he was writing this from jail he's writing from jail Rejoice in the Lord. He's in chains. He's riding from jail. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's riding from jail to live as Christ. To die is gain. Either way, I'm good. If they kill me, I'm good. I'll see Jesus. If they let me live, I can keep ministering and people will know who he is. I can't lose. Why? Because he defeated death. What do Paul's chains and the cross of Jesus show us? That you will do your greatest ministry often in your greatest misery. And in the most painful seasons of your life, if you'll go through the hurt and the humbling, there is an exaltation. There is a glory that's coming because of the power that is in his name. As every head be bowed, all eyes closed today. Father, thank you. Thank you for your name. That is above every name. 
God, thank you that the height of your exaltation is connected to the depth of your humility. God, thank you for coming low. Thank you for coming so low for me. When there was a chasm, when there was a space where my sin separated me from you, thank you for coming low. Why would we not exalt you to your proper place? And so he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is, hear me, Lord. That's the question that is before you today. Is he Lord of your life? Because if he is not Lord, which means he rules, he reigns over everything. He will not take parts of you. He must be Lord of all or not Lord at all. C.S. Lewis said it's so great. If he is Lord, we cannot casually respond to that claim. He is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. But if he is Lord, he must have every part of you. So on this Easter with heads bowed in this room and even there in the watch party room, your head is bowed and your eyes closed because I want you to do some soul searching and ask yourself, is he Lord? Can I tell you that you can stay in your pride, you can say, no, I can do life on my own, but I'm telling you, the beauty of this good news is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can come to this Savior, and you don't have to fix yourself. You can't fix yourself. He says that's what he does. We would like to thank you for being a part of our social global family. Please head to our website, socialdallas.online, and see the many ways you can stay connected with us from around the world.